Welcome to the Main Event Sports Show. This is Main Event on Politics. And as usual, every Monday, we're coming to you live from the Tunerville Tavern here at 1201 South 1st Street, basically the corner of 1st and Oak. Enter on the Oak Street side, if you will. I am joined here by, by very special guest, my good friend, Joshua Poe, the man who is a, a data scientist, if you will, <clears throat> a man who takes all sorts of data, reads over it, breaks it down to his very last compound. My man, Josh, what's going Thank on? Thank you, Haven. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Now, one of the things that you've been working on for the past couple of years, which has really caught uh, my attention and my eye, was your work on, on redlining. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you can, for our, our listeners out there, can, can you kind of explain, like, what is redlining? How did it start? And, and, and like, exactly, what is it? Well, specifically, redlining is, is the housing policies in the 1930s where the federal government came into neighborhoods and evaluate, or evaluated property and developed a system. Uh, I call it a system of residential apartheid a color-coded grading system that essentially determined that black neighborhoods would not be ranked as high as white neighborhoods. That's specifically what it is, but I think we've kind of had a a dialogue in the city that's done a disservice to what redlining actually was and really contextualizing it. So, you know, in the the last mayoral debate, uh, they asked the candidates about redlining. One candidate said something about the police, and the other said something about internet, internet service. So they didn't come close to even scratching the surface that's, that's, of what yeah, that's, that's, redlining actually was. So when I talk yeah, about, that's kind of far off. Yeah, when I talk about redlining, I'm really talking about a series of policies in the 19th century that were basically structural violence for black communities that completely destroyed black communities' ability to create wealth. Okay. And those policies were instead zoning, urban renewal, interstate highways, and and redlining and the lending practices. And those were basically city planning in the 20th century was weaponized to, cr- to make black people sort of a contagion to wealth creation. So that in 1924, the Hoover Commission on Zoning at the federal level decided that black people were a threat to property values. And we can't talk about real estate, we can't talk about economics unless we talk about that. So what that means is, you know, the human geography that you inhabit your very presence is a threat to not only not not to not only your ability to create wealth for yourself, but my ability to be to create capital in proximity to you. So it created this land use system where wealth creation was directly linked to the ability to exclude black people. And we're still ah, operating gotcha, in that system. Gotcha. So when you have a system like that, feedback loops are created and then you feed data into the feedback loop and you get uh, so if you have a white supremacist feedback loop you get white supremacist outcomes, and so, we're still operating okay. in that. So, so to kind of to kind of to break it down, now where, was the original red line practicing? This come like after the the New Deal or during kind of Roosevelt's New Deal when they're trying to create more of that middle class through home ownership the, the, and FHA loans and things of that nature. It was created then, but you really have to go back to say 1917, 1919, 1920 to find the sort of foundations to find the foundations of redlining. And you have to think about it in terms of industrial capitalism. And before we had zoning, the type of zoning we think of today, we had racial zoning. So cities were zoned by race. There were black blocks, there were white blocks. Louisville had one of the most rigid racial zoning ordinances in the country. Well, what you can still see, so like if you drive through West Louisville now, 
if you drive down, let's say, um, Madison Street, if you notice around 30th Street, all the names of streets change from Madison, turns into mm-hmm. Vermont. Uh, Chestnut turns into River Park. Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. at that point was Walnut Street, I think, turned into like Maple. Mm-hmm. So uh, I believe like another name. So that, that line or those street names, that was the demarcation from where black families lived and white families lived. So the white families could live on River Park, on Vermont, mm-hmm. on Maple, and all these mm-hmm. other streets, whereas white fam- where black families lived off of Chestnut. Madison, mm-hmm. Magazine, mm-hmm. and uh, other streets. And that happened, those street names changed a- in 1918 after racial zoning was abolished from a Supreme Court case right here in Louisville, the Buchanan-Worley case. So after that case, that's really when you get zoning as we know it today. That's when you get the profession of city planning sort of cre- you know, solidifying itself and coming up with these policies. And that's where you get sort of the origins of redlining. So it- you have to remember how powerful the labor movement was during this time. Four million people went on strike in 1919 in this country. So what you had was you had a lot of European immigrants coming over from uh, uh, East, you know, Eastern Europe, especially bringing a tradition and a culture of unionizing with them and socialism with them. They were moving into dense urban areas, into apartment buildings. Simultaneously, you had a massive wave of black migration coming from the South, fleeing white terrorism, fleeing the most, some of the most barbaric practices on earth at that time, and they were living together. And what was getting ready to happen is they were going to form trade unions together. So the, in the National Association of Real Estate, uh, uh, the, the National Board of Realtors, sorry, talked about this, we have to create a nation of individual homeowners. And they, because they said homeowners don't go on strike. If we can create debt, these strikes will stop. So all through the redlining maps in every city, I kept reading the, this term that diverse neighborhoods create unstable markets. And at first I thought that meant, well, they mean that, that, that there'll be racial strife within these neighborhoods and it'll somehow destabilize the market. That's not what they meant at all. They meant people got along a little bit too well and that they would unionize and that the strikes would destabilize the market. So all those European immigrants were made white. They were assimilated into whiteness and moved to the suburbs. And through that process, um, we, we, created, we, we elevated them into what we now think of as the white middle class. You know, oh, wow. Okay. And then, so the other aspect of redlining that I think most people may be familiar with is where you literally, where the government literally drew a red line mm-hmm. around certain around, neighborhoods. Around black neighborhoods. Mostly black mostly neighborhoods. Mostly black neighborhoods. Yeah, black neighborhoods were almost invariably redlined. Uh, so, so that depressed property values. It made it impossible for, for black folks to get loans made it impossible. for housing, which created a class of renters mm-hmm. and... And a cycle just kind of continued. It, yeah, it just created concentrated poverty. And, and I think we have to think of how concentrated black poverty was in service to industrial capitalism at that time. And, I, and I, we, we, we have to think about how this was intentional and, how, and what purpose it served. Because not only did we disinvest in areas, redlining also incentivized investment in other areas. So what's interesting about Louisville's maps is it pulled development toward the northeast. But Louisville was not developing toward the northeast. It was really developing in a more south-central direction. People at that time wanted to live around the three major parks. They wanted to live around Shawnee Park. They wanted to live around Cherokee Park. So Louisville was developing toward Iroquois Park. But if you look at the maps, the green and blue neighborhoods are in the northeast. You could say we're still moving development, still incentivizing development in the northeast with the Bridges Project and the Parkland. So the highest-ranked neighborhood in the maps was 
the Indian Hills, Mockingbird Valley, uh, uh, Rolling Fields neighborhood. But that wasn't the highest, pro those weren't the highest property values. So redlining kind of hijacked the system. And the consultants say in the maps that the price level of the homes is not the guiding factor. So it's not a free market principle in this, it's racial. And the reason Mockingbird Valley, Indian Hills was the highest ranked neighborhood is because they had the highest deed restrictions or the most deed restrictions. And that meant that, that property out there could not be sold to black people. Aha, so, okay. So white wealth was directly contingent upon black exclusion. So then the way that plays out is, in a practical matter, if you're a white guy and you live in Shawnee Park and you're relatively wealthy, 10 years after redlining, your property hasn't increased in value. Something happened. The property values were stagnant or they dropped a little bit. So what do you do? You move. You sell your house or you rent it and you move and you move farther east. And this is really what created white flight, what created suburban sprawl. Oh, wow. Okay. So that kind of takes us to almost present day. So how is, how is redlining used today? Because a lot of people think, because redlining technically has been outlawed by the federal government. It's come well, on and said, you know, well, we redlining. Have to, we have to remember when it was outlawed and why it was outlawed. Well, so I'm, right, I'm getting that. I'm okay. getting that. I'm trying to set you up. I'm trying okay. to set you up All here. Right. So redlining technically has been outlawed by the federal government. Say, well, you know what? Mm. You can no longer draw red lines, literal red lines, mm. around poor neighborhoods, specifically African-American neighborhoods mm. anymore. Mm. We're, we're getting away with that policy. However, according to your research, mm -hmm. the, the practice still exists. Yes. And it's kind of changed forms a little bit, but it's still there. Kind of explain that to us. Well... We had, when it, it was outlawed in 1968, so right after Martin Luther King was murdered, the Fair Housing Act was passed. And the Fair Housing Act, had, it really, it was a, um, sort of an obligatory gesture. It really had no legal merit, and it wasn't really enforceable. So it was really outlawed in name only. Um, so one of the ways redlining still happens, and people ask me this all the time, is, is redlining still happening? And I say, yeah, we just call it the real estate market. So everything that we do in real estate market, in the real estate market, is still redlining. So if you take a real estate market analysis class, you're basically taught how to do this, but you're taught to make the decisions based on objective data. But since there's implicit bias in the data, I call it the, the data's biased. The data's biased. Yeah. So I call it the residue of white supremacy. So uh, the largest multifamily developer in Cleveland recently made a map uh, to share his, his, with his developer friends on where you know, they should make investment. And he guess what? He had a color coded system. He had four categories, and the map looked exactly like Cleveland's redlining maps. So in his defense, he said, I'm not racist. I didn't feed any racialized data into this system, I've, but he got the same outcome. So he fed you know, risk factors like crime. So uh, because the data has already based on mm -hmm. a, a historical reference mm -hmm. that was set up specifically designed to keep black folks mm -hmm. poor, mm -hmm. So now the data you get today, which is based on historical data, obviously has it's a, yeah, it's a that feedback. bias already built back into yeah. it. So you just kind of feed back into it's, itself. It's a feedback loop. If I'm poor and I apply for a job and they base my, my criteria off my, credit, my low credit score, that pushes me further into poverty and it makes it hard for me to get a job. And this is what's happened on a large scale to black communities since slavery, really. So, but another way redlining works is exactly like the way it's always worked. We can't get our hands on the maps, but if we were able to get maps from the largest insurance companies in Louisville, Kentucky, or anywhere in the country, uh, banks, lending patterns, we would, get, we would get maps that look a lot like the 1938 maps. Uh, we know that insurance rates are higher 
in West Louisville. And if you ask the insurance companies that, they justify it by saying, well, the, uh, it's the more, crime is higher. There's the, more risk. Yeah. More people are driving without insurance. More people have crashes. So it just created the system. So, there's, so, this, so, what, so it's a structural issue. So, so we, we have to work, the work that we have to do is we have to work on dismantling that structure and, 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 and eliminating um, just the historic inequality um, instead, of focusing on, instead of focusing on fixing broken people, we, gotta, we have to fix a broken system. So let's work on, and, and let's talk about how this applies to our fair city of, uh, of Louisville, Kentucky. Um, what... What do you see now that that's kind of happening? I know you've, uh, you know, I follow you on Twitter, mm-hmm. and you had a, you've been having a series of tweets talking about the Louisville uh, Affordable Housing Trust Fund, which is kind of set up to to build affordable housing areas for folks that couldn't afford housing because, as you say, because of these historic biases in the data. What, what we're seeing now is developers build nothing but high end housing. Mm-hmm. We're not building housing for middle to lower income folks anymore because mm-hmm. everything's high end because that's where the margins are that's where you know the money is and things of that nature mm-hmm. so the trust fund was set up to kind of rectify that to kind of get a pull together to incentivize incentivize and developers mm-hmm. to build uh housing for middle to low income families mm-hmm. but from your research uh you seem to kind of apply that's not really happening well, I haven't um, dug into it, but I, but I have a question about the, the are we actually building affordable housing in Louisville? Uh, that, and, and that's the question we need to put on the table, and we need to evaluate that. Every, you know, any investment needs to be evaluated. So I, I just think we need to evaluate that because a lot of what we're building is at 80% area median income. So 80% area median, a one-bedroom apartment at 80% area median, area median income rents for over $1,000 a month. So, oh, so stop, stop. So what's what's area medium income? So area median income is around fifty five thousand a year. Okay. We just had a housing needs assessment, which is great. It's wonderful that this housing needs assessment has been released. So some consultants came down from Pittsburgh. Uh, the city paid them about a hundred thousand dollars to tell them what housing advocates have been saying here for ten years, and that's that we're not building affordable housing for the people that actually need it. We're not building it for the poorest people in our city. So what that housing needs assessment determined is that we're th- over thirty thousand units shy of affordable housing units at 30% of area median income. And that's where our greatest need is because we're not really understanding poverty and we're not really explaining how poor people are in Louisville, particularly how poor black people are. So, so you, said the, the, uh, you said the median income, or mm-hmm. the area median income is, 50, is 55,000. It, yeah, it's around 50. 59, I do believe. I think it's, yeah, it's 59. It's, it's 59,000 dollars a year, so 80% of that means that you, know, you can afford an apartment that is a one-bedroom apartment that's $1,000 a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is the AMI for your average black family in this area? So the, I think that the, area, the AMI for black people in Jefferson County is around thirty-three dollars to $35,000. Oh, wow. So that's almost a $20,000 difference. Exactly. So... so and, and 30% AMI is 25000 a year, and that's our greatest need. 
So we're not, we're not even coming close to building housing for people at 30% area median income. As a matter of fact, we're tearing it down. So, so we just destroyed 13, we just destroyed 800 units of public housing in Beecher Terrace. Anywhere from 1,300 to 2,000 people lived in Beecher Terrace on any given day. The median income in that area of Russell is less than $10,000 a year. Oh, wow. So that's what, and that's the conversation we don't have. We just destroyed housing for the poorest people in the city. And just to put that into context, Owsley County, Kentucky, in eastern Kentucky, was called the poorest county in the country by Al Jazeera. Owsley County, Kentucky, the median income is 23000 a year. It's like a 30% poverty rate. So you could double the median income for a lot of people in Russell and California and still not meet the, the, the median income of Owsley County. Still not meet the median income in Appalachia. That's crazy. So when that's, we that's drive down Jefferson Street and we see those tents and we see homeless people, my prediction is that's going to get worse. And we're not using we're, because we're not really using public funds to build the kind of housing that we need. It's, so we're using it. We're, 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 it's really set up to provide incentives to developers to do what they would be doing without the incentives. So, so let me ask you this question. So, what would or what does 30% of AMI look like? Like, like, what's the rental, like, value of that? Would that be, like, a, a $400 one-bedroom apartment? Or? I mean, no, it would be, like, five or 600 Okay, oh, it's, like, five yeah. or $600 for a one-bedroom yeah. apartment. Yeah. Yeah, which, when I mean, we can get that in. Like, you can, still, you can still find that here. That's not out of reach yet. I think it will be out of reach in, in you know, eight years. Five years, I think it will be. Okay, okay. Yeah. So now we kind of talked about what redlining is, how, how we kind of got to this point, how, like, what's going on now? Like, what other instances do you see of redlining uh, still occurring today? Well, I think to put redlining into context is we have to understand how capital and real estate interact for black people and poor people, and it's not set up for them to benefit from. Because I think the way that, that people have explained this and the way the city explains it is, okay, we're going to deal with redlining by making investment, as if the people who were targeted in redlining are going to benefit from that investment. And, and I think it's important to talk about this in the context of merger and understand how urban land value has changed in the last 10 or 20 years and really understand gentrification and understand how black, like I said, concentrated black poverty was serviceable to industrial capitalism. We don't have industrial capitalism anymore. It's over. So to kind of explain what industrial capitalism means, well, I'm assuming. Building the railroad. It's just like, yeah. so, when you, so when Louisville was still a heavy manufacturing town. Mm-hmm. You needed a, a class of folks that you can exploit for cheap labor mm-hmm. in order for those companies to make the highest profit. So back like in the you know, 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, mm-hmm. et cetera, when you had Ellen and, um, Ellen mm-hmm. and Railroad, still headquarters yeah. still on Broadway, yeah. you had a lot of Pullman porters, which were guys, were mostly yeah. black guys who worked as yeah. the waiters, things of that nature on the mm-hmm. railroad, which were at that time were considered like very well-paying jobs, but in the grand scheme of things, like really weren't. Well, they were union jobs. There were union jobs. Yeah. So, and he had, he had like, a, a, like all the tobacco factories that mm-hmm. were still in West Florida. They need a lot of labor. harvester. Yeah. yeah. And those places need a lot of labor, a lot of heavy mm-hmm. labor, mm-hmm. a lot of cheap labor. Like today, I guess in Louisville, with, with the logistics economy, you need a lot of cheap labor for warehousing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. since the country as a whole has kind of started to shift from a manufacturing heavy uh, economy to more of a service economy. Mm-hmm. You no longer need. You don't need that concentrated you, black poverty. You don't need that, that cool. cheap. They don't need that cheap labor. As a matter of fact, 
white millennials want to live in the urban core, right? We, we now that now with that gas, now the, 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 the cost of living in the suburbs has increased, we need that land. So, so go back to merger, go mm-hmm. back to Hope Six, go back to the federal programs that deconcentrated poverty. So the Brookings Institution is a major think tank. They go around the country, sort of like Harlan Bartholomew and the planners did in the 60s that, that, that initiated urban renewal. They go around the country and cities pay them a lot to come in and advise. So they come to Louisville before merger and they tell the local government, you know, your concentrated poverty for black people's off the charts. It's like second to New Orleans. It's some of the, mo- with some of the most concentrated poverty in the country. And it doesn't look good on a map when businesses want to locate here, when you want to quote unquote attract talent, People don't want to live around those type of poor neighborhoods and the stigma that's associated with it. So if you'll recall, uh, our mayor at that time, after merger, said that Louisville was becoming older, blacker, and poor. He said it in the media, in public. Uh, and that's what he meant, that the data needed to change. So Louisville looked better after merger. It looked better in those rankings and all those silly rankings that we pay attention to. Uh, it looked better in that data. Now fast forward to 2012. Brookings Institute comes back, and they're talking a lot about deconcentrating poverty. They're talking a lot about the hollowing out of downtown. So if you look at a map, our census tracts downtown, some of those census tracts, $10,000 a year, you know, $12,000 a year. This is some of the poorest areas in the country. The Brookings Institute says, you know, people see this. Amazon sees this. People don't want to move here. People want to live next to downtown. They don't want to live next to that. So the Brookings Institution says, and the mayor uses this language a lot. The Brookings Institution recommends that the competitiveness of a city means an intentional focus around lifting census tracts out of poverty. And we hear that, and we think that's a positive thing. We think well, people that think when, when, when people say we're going to lift census tracts out of poverty, people think, well, we're going to, leave, we're going to lift the poor folks yeah, out of poverty. Yeah, that means some sort of program, right? But so, yeah. what's really happening is... We're going to just disperse the poor folks We're going to all over Jefferson County. So instead of having concentrated areas of poverty, yeah. Yeah. it's just a household here, maybe a, a couple of streets here, a mm-hmm. couple of streets there. But you don't see it on the map. You don't see it on the map anymore. And the city then celebrates by saying, hey, we, uh, the median income in this census tract double. The college degree attainment in this census tract doubled in 10 years. Doesn't mean anybody that was there before got a college degree. It's just a gentrification scheme. But that's the narrative around it. So we have to pay attention to the narrative. And we have to pay attention to what's going on above the table and what's going on under the table because the policies that have came out recently are very, um, they're not even disguised very well. Well, one one describes some of those policies that are coming down the pike right now that that are very current. Just in the last week. Yeah, yeah, in the last week. Just in the last week, we have a $1 million forgivable, low interest and forgivable loan fund for market rate housing in Russell. And it's not even all of Russell. It's just a targeted area. So all of a sudden, we're talking about anti-displacement. We're talking about how we're going to limit displacement. We don't have one policy around limiting displacement, but we're talking about it. Um, It's like if I have a company that pollutes pollutes water, I'm going to go around talking a lot about how much I love clean water. Uh, So we're selling this narrative. So we have a million dollars. While we're in the middle of a budget crisis, suddenly there's a million dollars to build market rate housing in Russell. Um, On the tail end of a housing needs assessment that says we need well below, we need 30%, we need 40%. So that tells you what the priority is. Uh, And and it's not that I'm even against market rate housing in Russell, but if if you do that first, if that's your first venture in the neighborhood, you're going to displace people. You're going to raise property values and you're going to raise rent. And you're going to raise rent so rapidly that people can't 
absorb the impact. And that's what's getting ready to happen in Russell, I'm afraid of, is that the real tragedy is um, that property values are going to rise very quickly. And I, I think opportunity zones were really designed for that. And then at the same time, the housing authority just changed the policy um, that raised the income limits on their replacement housing. So they're not targeting low-income people either. So the type of poverty that we have in Louisville, since we haven't brought that into the narrative, since we haven't discussed it, discussed it really, and, have, and haven't created poverty policies around what to do, we're just selling those folks down the river. So what would you suggest would be some of the uh, solutions when or is I, some of the policies that we can kind of put in place to kind of counteract some of this? So I think so. The, we have to think about this in terms of if we're going to talk about redlining, we have to talk about it to really expound on how capital works in black neighborhoods. Black people have not benefited from those policies. They haven't benefited from that investment, and they're not going to. So we have to start working in new paradigms. One of the things I'm hopeful about is that the housing needs assessment actually mentioned community land trust as a recommendation. So we haven't been able to talk about community land trust in Louisville in 10 years. Now that these consultants have, have put it on the table, hopefully we can get some traction around that. So we can't, we can't keep talking about individual homeowners and wealth creation because that's the narrative. We're not going to create wealth. You're not going to create wealth in a neighborhood where 60% of the people are below poverty level. That's ridiculous. And, and what it does is it just pushes any serious conversation away. But we can talk about community land trust. We can talk about rent. Okay, so back up. So I know a lot of folks who are listening have no idea what a community land trust is. Yeah. So kind of kind of explain what is a, a community land trust and how does that work? Just this, I'm just going to give a real simple version, um, and then people can look it up. There's a great uh, book called Reimagining Real Estate, if people want to go into it deeper. But basically, a community land trust is a nonprofit that buys up a lot of land. And typically, the city will sell them land cheaply. And then they build on it, or they have existing structures, and the residents own the buildings, but the nonprofit owns the land. And what that does is it protects the residents from the rising real estate cost around it, and the nonprofit is able to keep those costs down. And, and what's so important about that is how we think about real estate. Poor people have to be protected from the market, right? They're not, it's not designed for them to profit from. It's not designed for them to build wealth from as individuals. So we have to start thinking about that collectively. And we have to look at collect, if not in not only community land trust, but all sorts of collective ownership models. People can build wealth, but they can't build it as individuals. So, so like if I, let's say, bought a block in Russell mm -hmm. and I created a... Haven nonprofit LLC and mm -hmm. made a, made a, a land trust. I could buy a block mm -hmm. in Russell mm -hmm. and build houses on that, but because I technically own or the nonprofit would own the land, mm -hmm. and other folks in the community could come in and build housing or existing housing, mm -hmm. I could not artificially depress, but I could keep the land values low, which keeps the the value of the property low, which keeps the rents low at the same time. So exactly. even though it's a neighborhood around it goes mm -hmm. up in value a mm -hmm. lot, this specific block mm -hmm. would stay relatively stable. Would so their rents, autonomy. Yeah. yeah, so their and rents wouldn't rise as high. So they can yeah. still live in the mm -hmm. community that they've always lived in on and the same, on about the same income. Not only that, but since it's collective, uh, the, the residents would share uh, improvement costs. And the residents would be would make up the board of the nonprofit, 
So they would share in the decision making of that. And it's a great model. It's not radical. It's been in New York since the 60s. It's kind of like a co-op. It's like a co-op. It's exact, and, that's, and that's exactly what it was. So in explaining this to someone, I, I was trying to explain to someone recently, and, they, and I said, you know, people aren't designed, the workers at Ford don't profit from Ford. They have to form unions. It's sort of, and the way I explained it, it was like, sort of like collective bargaining within real estate. And that's really what we have to think of. I wrote, uh, I wrote my undergrad thesis on how neighborhoods could revitalize equitably, I think in 2006. And this is what I came to the conclusion that, that you have to have, community land trust and rent control. Now, we, we, we now, don't have rent control now, on the table yet. but Outside of New York, I've never heard rent control. You don't really find it much outside of New York. So explain rent control for those rent, who don't live in New York. Rent, but rent, rent control is basically just caps on rent, where there's, a, there's, there's some sort of state authority that puts a cap on, cap on that rent. And I think we need it in Russell very quickly. I think we need to put a cap on the rent for disabled people and elderly people because Russell has such a high concentration of, of, of people who have disabilities and very elderly people. They're not going to be able to survive there if we don't put So I think having rent control for protected classes yeah, with some urgency around it is really needed right now. And I think if the city and the people working in Russell really wanted to have an authentic conversation about displacement, these, were, these would be the, be on the table. That would be on the table. Because yeah. I have a couple of friends that actually live in New York. And, you know, they live in parts of New York that have just gentrified, you know, specifically parts of Brooklyn mm -hmm. that have just really gentrified like craze, like one-bedroom apartments are going for like $2,500 a month. Yeah. No, which New York isn't actually that uncommon. Mm -hmm. But because they still live in a rent-controlled apartment, their rent is like $700 a month, yeah, which is. is astronomically cheap. Now, if they move, yeah. they lose it. Mm -hmm. So they literally have to stay in their apartment almost forever because every place in New York has got to be so expensive, they literally can't afford to move anyplace else, mm -hmm. at least not live comfortably. Mm -hmm. Which is why it's very, which is why it's well suited for people with disabilities and elderly people. Yeah, because they're on a fixed income. You, know, you get your social income. security check. You get yeah. either twelve hundred or twenty four hundred dollars a month. Yeah. So you have a, a very very fixed income. I can see yeah. I, I can see where rent control be awesome mm -hmm. because if you start moving to like assisted living facilities, um, I, and, I, and I've experienced this with some of my you know elder family members, it's expensive. Mm -hmm. It is. Ignorantly expensive mm -hmm. to live in an assisted living facility that literally costs as much as Rashawn makes in a year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Particularly if it's farther away from the urban core and you got to absorb the, the transportation cost. A lot well, you can't. A lot of times you just stay there exactly. because you can't a lot of, a lot of afford to go anywhere. A lot of people in Russell don't have cars. I think 70% of the people in Beecher Terrace don't own automobiles. Yeah, so you're, you're, trapped. you're trapped. And if you disperse yeah. those folks all around the county where... Bus service is very sporadic. Well, the one thing about living in West Louisville, and especially downtown Louisville, is that you have access to a, a pretty reliable TARC system in the urban core. In the urban core, yeah. But once especially you, if you have to use it for medical service. Yeah. So, you know, there's a 52, the medical circulator. You can take that from West Downtown right to the medical center. You know, so it's well set up for people. Yeah, but once you get in the county... On yeah. the far south end, on the far east end. So I know that the city has put some affordable housing, like out Chamberlain Lane and things of that nature. And if you don't have mm -hmm. a car and you're way on eastern Jefferson County, which is a you know, very suburban, sprawling uh, neighborhood, mm -hmm. you can't get anywhere mm -hmm. from there unless you use Uber or Lyft, which you know, gets expensive at 5 6 $7 a, a trip. 
Mm -hmm. And it also puts more pressure on the TARC-3 service, which puts more pressure on the public transit system. So which there is are all sorts of multiple. Grossly underfunded. Exactly. So, yeah, it's a bad investment. And it's, and it's very timely that we're talking about these things in the midst of a budget, a budget crisis or an engineered crisis or whatever we want to call it, a budget issue. Um, because do you want to go into the budget a little bit? Hey, you know what? <laughs> we, we, we have a couple minutes left. I really want to talk about redlining. And, okay, okay. But that's okay, though. We will talk about that as well because I, I really want to get – I, I want our, our viewers to kind of really get a, a handle – an idea on what is redlining, because a lot of people think redlining is in the past, and a lot of people think redlining has been the government banned it. But as you said, because all that was already built into the data, mm-hmm. and realtors nowadays use all that historical data from the 1910s, 15s, 20s, and 30s, yeah. all that racial bias is built in the data, which is what everything's kind of based on today. Yeah. And I, th- I, th- I think a really appropriate response that the city should have had, because they kind of draped themselves in the, in the work and in the progressive language around the work, and they, and they really sort of, you know, basically uh, anointed themselves sort of the ambassadors of, of historical discrimination, eliminating historical discrimination without any real policy responses to it. So I think one of the things the city should have done, if, if they wanted to have an authentic response to redlining, uh, is conduct a, you say, a year-long investigation or an audit into banks, into lending practices, insur- into insurance companies, uh, and, I th- and, then, and then publish those results, and then come up with a strategic plan to correct those actions. I think that would have been an appropriate and proportionate response to, uh, to the exposure of the 1938 maps. And I think another appropriate response would have been a sort of a budgetary response is to try to redistribute some of the e- some economic resources to the communities that experience redlining. Oh, which is crazy. So, so when you hear people talk about uh, systemic or systematic white supremacy, this is kind of like what like folks are talking about. Yeah. You know, based on data maps from 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, using that historical data that we use today to build uh, our zoning laws, to build our uh, uh, the, the realtors still use today to show which you know properties are viable, which aren't viable, which where investment should go and shouldn't go, and what mm-hmm. investment looks like and what mm-hmm. you can do with investment. Mm-hmm. Now you can see we're using de- historical data that's kind of built on these facts and mm-hmm. you know schools of thought that are based off of data from this era. You can see how it still perpetuates to this day, not in the quote unquote legal sense of somebody sitting there just drawing a red line around black folks, but mm-hmm. The data produces that same outcome. It produces the same outcome, yeah. And I know a lot of people say, we can just get rid of data, but it's really hard to because everything you do is, you know, as realtors, as actual scientists who do all the insurance is based off historic modeling and Mm. things of that nature. So those biases get built back into the system. Yeah, and it's, and, and the, Redlining created a caste system. That's what it was really for, is to create and enforce that caste system. The same caste system was created in colonial times with, with slavery. It, it reinforced that in an urban setting. So really, you know, like I said, go back to the early 20th century, uh, the same thing that happened in colonial America with, with cr- basically the creation of whiteness and elevating poor whites based on complexion happened in the, happened in the cities. 
but it had to be it had to be designed. It yeah, had to be yeah, because you see this over and over again, like with the, the GI Bill, when a lot of soldiers, mm-hmm. you know, came back from yeah. World War Two, and they had all this money and all these government programs yeah. to help them buy homes, to help them move out to the at that point the, the brand new suburbs. So that's how people became middle class. Yeah. That's so in, in Louisville, those, really for those people who don't know, if in Louisville, those brand new World War Two era suburbs mm-hmm. would be places uh, like the Bonaire neighborhoods. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty much the neighborhoods like right outside of the Waterson Expressway. Yeah. And you, all those you, first generation suburbs that people moved into using the GI bills yeah. and that nature. But all those GI bills weren't available to the black soldiers. Well, the FHA loans weren't either. And that's, a, yeah. that's another point. So when public housing was built during that time, public housing was built mostly for people coming back from World War II, working class people. And it was segregated. So in order, to, in order to build public housing, you had to build one site for black people, one site for white people, right? So all over the country, this is how it's being built. What happened was five years after the public housing for white people's built, it's empty. They all left. They're gone, right? Because they got those FHA loans in the suburbs. To buy housing. To buy to houses. Yeah, so federal policy said that those FHA loans had to be deed restricted. Black people couldn't get those. So that public housing for whites that's empty, guess what happens? Black people move into it. And it's not like white people just moved to the suburbs. All the infrastructure went with them, all the investment, all the jobs, all the resources. So that's in the 60s. That's when you get like the, the creation of like this permanent underclass in the inner city that we have. And that was created by... by like, that was created by intentional policies. Very intentional, yeah. Created the lack of black wealth. So mm-hmm. now you look at 2019, you still see those same policies which are based off of erroneous... Uh, the, not erroneous, but data specifically designed to impoverish black folks. Mm-hmm. And then you wonder why you're still getting the same result. And mm-hmm. then, if I'm understanding you correctly, what we try to put in as solutions really isn't so much a solution. What we're really doing is, is that we realize that the economy has changed. We're no longer a manufacturing economy. We're a service economy. Mm-hmm. So now we just need to disperse poor folks mm-hmm. and disperse black folks so it can deconstruct the poverty, but you're really not fixing yeah. any of the core issues. So those folks will still be poorer, and because they're not concentrated, you really can't get the services to all the people that's necessary. Mm-hmm. We're almost disappearing black poverty in a way so that we don't really have to deal with it, and that's what I'm seeing. So Chicago and Detroit just lost black population for the first time in history. That's astounding. Which is crazy. That's crazy to think about. I mean, you know, but that's what the data is. That's what we're, that's what we're moving toward. And we have to realize that that, that too, is a serviceable product. Yeah, because you see it, not to cut you off, but you mm-hmm. see, like, in other cities. So I know, like, Detroit has gone through and they have policies to just plow down just mm-hmm. wide swaths of urban Detroit. So if you go to Detroit mm-hmm. now, you will see literally blocks and blocks and blocks mm-hmm. empty. Maybe there's one house where they just bulldoze everything over. I know to like to, I think Toledo and some other cities. Toledo, Gary, a yeah, lot of your Rust Belt cities. Yeah, we're doing the same thing. They're, they're now bulldozing what used to be poor urban or just urban black neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Just bulldozing those out, mm-hmm. moving folks, spreading them all around. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully they hope that yeah. the, the, they have the greenfields and they can build new. The great thing about Louisville, though, Haven, is that we have an opportunity to do something about this. Because it just started. It just started, and we moved so slow. So in 2008, when the market crashed, Cincinnati 
gentrified rapidly. Nashville gentrified rapidly. It's one of the reasons there's so much investment right now is when the Brookings Institute comes to Louisville, they're like, hey, you guys tried to keep sprawling for 10 years. You built 1970s infrastructure. Well, that's an embarrassment to, you know, to the world and with the Bridges Project. But you got to catch up, right? So they're trying to bring Russell up really quickly. And that's, but we have time. Plus, we only have 5,000 vacant properties in this city. And I keep telling people this, that's nothing. Do you know how many vacant properties Gary, Indiana has? You know, uh, uh, Detroit forecloses on, I think it's like 200,000 vacant proper properties a year. Whoa, 200,000 vacant it's, properties it's, it's a between, year? I think it's 120,000, 200,000. It's, a, it's, a, it's over 100,000. That is insane. We have 3,000 vacant properties in West Louisville. We can do something about that. I think, I think a, 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 a very sane uh, strategy would be for the city to say, hey, let's take $150 million dollars. And let's rehab 1,000 vacant properties. Now, when so, you say $150 million, a lot of people want to flip. Mm -hmm. They want to flip. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we just, the mayor came out and said, hey, we got this $65 million hole. I got to raise taxes. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure we can, how, where's this $150 million going to come from? Well, it, Omni Hotel. We don't, we don't talk about the budgets. Omni um, Hotel. <laughs> the Omni Hotel, was a, it was a good place to look. $150 million would rehab approximately 1,000 vacant properties. So what we you're could reduce is, our vacant property stock by a third with $150 million. So what you're saying, instead of putting $150 million into building the Omni Hotel, mm -hmm. the city literally could have rehabbed a third of West Louisville. Exactly, yeah. Now, the city says we're getting $4 for every dollar return on the Omni. I don't see how that's possible. Maybe that's a model, but I don't see how that's possible. It might be a prediction. But I would like to see sort of a, an economic impact investment on what a thousand, rehabbing a thousand vacant properties in West Loop would, would look like. Well, the tax value alone would be exactly. astronomical. And not only that, but think about how much money we're paying the LMPD to terrorize the black communities in West Loop. You know, we, 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 and that too is a serviceable product. And I don't really talk about redlining without talking about that sort of structural violence because the police department pays a role in keeping black people poor also. So a study came out recently that said, um, I forget who did, I think it was from Duke. Basically, if you're poor and nothing bad happens to you in 20 years, you can escape poverty. The police department ensures that bad things keep happening to young black men in this country and they never escape poverty. Well, so, it's also a way to fund city governments that strap for cash. We saw that in Ferguson. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that, you know, when, when Mike Brown was good in Ferguson, one of the things that come out in the Ferguson protests were that cops were pulling over black folks at a just astronomical rate mm -hmm. with petty fines and mm -hmm. everything else. But that money was literally used to fund and that's exactly, the city. And that's exactly what we have here. We have young black men being terrorized in this city, basically for marijuana possession, being locked up. And, 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 that, and that's a largely overinflated budget. So we have to talk about an invest-divest strategy around this. We have to talk about divesting in LMPD and have the political will to put that on the table because if we've got money to terrorize young black men, if we've got money to pull people over like you know, Kevin Cosby who have a plastic thing on their license plate, then they have too much time on their hands. You know, that, that happened to me at U of L. I got pulled over having a plastic license plate and they said that my, uh, my the, the plastic five bit sigma lights that I had uh, covered up <laughs> Jefferson County. Yeah, and now, that was why they pulled me over. Yeah, if they've got time to do that, then something's wrong. Of course, wrong. I've yeah. also been pulled over not once <laughs> but twice on my bicycle while riding through downtown Louisville <laughs> on the sidewalk. So that that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, I've tried to get the data on who they're 
who they're stopping for riding on the sidewalk. You can't get that data. But, but, we, but we've got to have a conversation about the budget and really be willing to unpack and air out what the LMPD spending money on in this city. Or we're going to keep kicking this sort of ball back and forth between the mayor and the council about cutting our necessary services or raising taxes. Rocky. Continue. So yeah, so I understand because uh, the um, I know the LMPD is um, like seventy percent of like the city's budget. Public cl- safety is about sixty percent. Sixty percent. I, so I know it's like a high. Yeah. So public safety is about sixty percent. If you include corrections and Metro Safe, I think LMPD is somewhere between forty and fifty. It's really hard to sort of analyze those numbers. Well, that's 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 a big bite of budget. That's a huge chunk of the budget. Not only that, but the LMPD spent $1 million on overtime in six weeks in 2016. Um, Meanwhile, crime rose during that time. Metro Council was supposed to audit the LMPD's overtime pay. It never came back with an audit. So here here we are, 2019, having a conversation about whether to raise taxes or make these cuts, and we haven't seen the audit yet. That's crazy. That's crazy. Dr. Poe. Thank you once again, Thank man, you. for, for coming out talking about Red Line. But before you go, before you go, and we transition to the greatness that is March Madness. <laughs> man, you have to give us the historical breakdown of how the Derby Festival came to be. Because once you told me that, my mind was blown. Well, this my just, mind was, was blown. So I, can't, I came upon this information reading George C. Wright, who was a local historian. Um, and you have to understand, after the Civil War, uh, a lot of Confederate officers, Confederate uh, uh, generals, moved to Louisville. So it's, it's, it's sort of, uh, they sort of established a Confederate supremacy here. So your lawyers, your, your politicians, your, your ruling class were all former Confederates. Uh, oh, wow. And what they started doing um, is they started having sort of Confederate memorial services, you know, parades. Badges, Which you see happen all over statues, the country after yeah. the Civil War. You mm-hmm. see a lot of... But a lot of people was, want to, you know, have all the Confederate soldiers and monuments and things went up. Uh-huh. But it was strong here. So what happened was um, when Robert E. Lee died, and I think it was 1870, Robert E. Lee dies, they have a big parade, right? And the city mourns Robert E. Lee's death and, and shuts down. The Derby started 1875, uh, but it wasn't the Derby as we think of it then. It was kind of a minor horse race. In 18, on May 1st, 1877... The last federal troops leave the South. I think it's in South Carolina. So that's the last Union regiment that's in the South leaves. So, you know, Confederates have parades and celebrations around this. And Louisville had like a week-long festival in honor of the, of the Union troops leaving. Uh, the people didn't go to work. They had a parade downtown. The houses of these Confederate officers were, were, were like decorated. And, you know, just the, and, they, and they got together and sang, you know, old Southern songs. Um, and that became the Kentucky Derby. So, oh wow! So that par- that's that, crazy. That event leading up to the Derby became like the Derby Parade, and everything we think of today as the Derby. So the Derby is sort of a celebration of the Old South, and you see this with the plantation style hats and the clothes and saying "My Old Kentucky." Guys dressed like pimps on yeah. Derby. I, I feel you. So so it's it, like a suit, so uh, Colonel like, Sanders ties. So the Derby. William White owning an iced tea and having his white friends get it for him. I, I, I get that. I get that. So the Derby is really like a sort of a Confederate memorial pageant. That's crazy. Yeah, now I'm gonna get in trouble for saying this, but you know, people don't like this, but we've got to own it. 
You know, we, there's been a lot of talk about owning our history, and that's part of the history we have to own. Wow, that's yeah. that's deep. Yeah, man. Yeah. So after the Castleman statue, I guess you know the city's going to work on removing the derby from. <laughs> How do you get a dry laugh on that one? Yeah. No, no, the derby's going nowhere. No, matter of fact, we increased it two weeks. Yeah, instead of one week, we're yeah. like we're gonna double down on it. Yeah, but that's that's but that's the or those are the origins. So, yeah. And now we got Colonel Sanders' RoboCop. Well, RoboCop is Colonel Sanders. Uh, amazing how that. <laughs> you lost me on that one. Oh, you haven't seen the Colonel Sanders commercial? He's like RoboCop. No, I haven't seen that one. <laughs> man, that's crazy. Hey, well, once again, Dr. Poe, thanks for Thank stopping you. by, man. I've been on politics, man. You know, I can't wait to have you again. So we can. I know you have like a lot of data that you want to kind of get out there and disseminate. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I can't wait to talk more about affordable housing mm -hmm. and, and how it. we can like correct a lot of these issues before we get too far down the road. Mm -hmm. Let's do it. All right, good deal. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Main Event Sports Show, the Main Event on Politics. And like I like to end every segment, without any struggle, there is no progress. Peace.